All right, well, good morning, community. It is great to be with you this morning on a cold but lovely Chicago February day. I uh, hope you had a great Valentine's Day this last week and Ash Wednesday on the same day. Uh, did anyone else find that like a weird intersection? I think it happens something like every 30, 60 years, something like that. Um, it's fun, you know, love and death. They're side by side on Wednesday this last week. It's a great setup for a series on Habakkuk. So let's, let's dive in. Um, this morning, as we're in week three, in just a moment, I want to sort of cover where we've been, but I wanted to start by talking about running and how often this picture of running can be a really helpful image for the Christian faith. And so to begin, I just want to ask, I can't quite see very well, but who here would call themselves a runner? Is anybody here runners? Can I see any runners? I've got a few sort of slow hands. Uh, I think that would put you with me in the three-ish mile range, probably, right? Is that, is that about fair for those who have gently raised their hand? Um, if anybody confidently raised your hand, and again, I didn't see anybody. Anybody run marathons? Any of you guys done the marathon game? Yes, I see one here. Yeah, some marathoners. Um, have any of you run fast marathons? Fast marathon. Okay, yeah, the hand's still raised. Okay, yeah. So this last year in the Chicago Marathon, uh, the world record was broken for an under sub, was it three hours? Uh, some of you may have more information than this than me. Sub three hour Chicago, or the marathon uh, was beaten in three hours. Um, there's a video that they put together, and this is just, this is just for fun, right? A uh, video you may have seen of people, just normal people, trying to keep up with the three hour pace of what was run in the marathon. So go ahead and take a look and see if this resonates with any of you when it comes to your running abilities. You. It just feels good to see people falling uh, when they're trying to run fast. It makes me feel better. Um, here's, here's why I bring up that image, though, and I want to let it linger in your mind for just a moment as we connect it to this question we've been asking. I, I think what can happen for us in either our Christian journeys, our Christian faith, maybe you would call yourself a Christian, maybe you're interested in Jesus, maybe you were a Christian, now you're not sure what you are anymore. Wherever you're at in this arc of a journey— I think running is involved with faith at some point, right? At some point, the speed begins to pick up with which life is happening. Things are moving. The more involved and invested you get in the church, the more activated you are. Your time is starting to go and, and life is happening and your job is moving forward. And it can feel like that treadmill starts to just move faster and faster and faster. And sometimes you look around and you're like, seems like a couple people seem to pull off this world record pace, right? Like, why do a couple of those people I know seem to be sprinting all the time? I don't know how they do it. But maybe for you, definitely for me, at some point, at some point in life, as you are running this Christian journey, it's like you hit this moment where the speed is just too much. And instead of being able to pull the speed down on the treadmill of faith that you are on, you start to feel that panic that you could see in those guys' eyes, right? That was like, I can't keep going. <laughs> this is going to stop. 
Um, so there's, there's this description for this um, in the Christian community that is called the wall. Um, ironically, this is the same description that is often used in running. I want to show you a diagram here. Um, consistently, I, some of the series is just letting you know you're not alone and you're not crazy, uh, that if you chart a person's faith journey, consistently what happens is that in the early days, whether this happened for you as a child or a teenager or in college, or maybe it's a journey you're on right now, in the early days, you start to connect faith to the truths and beliefs of, of Christianity. You start to get more and more invested, more and more excited. It's like you're growing. You're starting to see as you pray, like God is answering prayers. You're starting to connect with other Christians. They seem to love you and know you well. It's beautiful. It's exciting. And all all this growth is happening until the pace gets too fast, until maybe unexpected tragedies enter in. Maybe things with your family start to get really, really hard, or maybe you have those friendships that were going great at the start, and all of a sudden that community, that small group, that church you're a part of just seems to collapse. This moment, um, as two researchers back in the 90s did this very uh, influential study called The Critical Journey, they surveyed thousands and thousands of people in their faith journey, and they said consistently there is a moment that everyone hits. It's guaranteed that you will at some point hit the wall. You will hit the wall. Um, this was described over 500 years ago. So this is not a new phenomenon. This isn't like a trendy Christian topic. 500 years ago, there's a very famous poem written by St. John of the Cross that was called The Dark Night of the Soul. Dark night of the soul. And what St. John of the Cross describes is what many of us feel. I was actually looking at the poem again just last night. Uh, he says, in the darkness, I was there. I turned for you and you were not there. And this is the experience in faith. It's like up to this moment, God just seems present, available. God is maybe making sense. Maybe God is bringing the world together. And suddenly in the dark night at the wall, when it's moving too fast, you turn to God and it seems like God's not there. Like, it's just darkness, and you can't see anything. Um, I want to I lean in with this, because this experience of the wall, this experience of the dark night of the soul, is actually what the book of Habakkuk is about. Um, if you go back and trace with us, I know some of you weren't able to be here for the first two weeks. Um, if you go back to Habakkuk 1, what has happened is that uh, the kingdom of Judah which is down south in Israel, uh, has been having a really hard time. The kings have kind of been turning. The society is starting to drift further and further and further away from God. There's all these prophets. So Habakkuk is written right in the days of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, these big famous prophets that are there. And they're preaching that the people need to change their ways. Otherwise, if the people don't change, then, then God is going to allow destruction to come in. Um, and Habakkuk joins these prophets with his own, like, guys, we need to change. This isn't working. But the twist of Habakkuk, which is a great twist. The Bible has some amazing twists if you give it some time. The twist in Habakkuk is that as Habakkuk has turned to God, thinking, all right, God, right? Like, the people need to change. We've been telling them the prophecies, they're coming. So, Lord, what are you going to do? And God's response is, I'm going to allow the Babylonians to invade and wipe this kingdom out. The Babylonians were known in that time, uh, as were most of the foreign powers, the mega powers, for being cruel, for being tyrants, uh, for ruling with an iron fist the countries that they invade. 
So for Habakkuk, this, this crunch intersection of like, he sees that things have been going wrong, right? He understands that life is not quite as it should be, but he has turned to God and now this word from God doesn't compute or make sense to him. How could God allow these terrible foreign invaders to be the answer to the injustice that has taken place in his own land with his own people? It's an incredibly perplexing question, isn't it? Like, I just want, before we move on, I know we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, I want you to sit for just a moment with the possible implications for this scenario for your own life right? As we look at the world around us, there are many things that are going wrong. I bet if we asked you how to fix the world, you would have a few thoughts, right? I'm not saying you'd want to like take on the job or be the person to solve everything, but you probably at least have two or three things that you're like, that's terrible. I can't believe that's happening. You know what we need to do? We need to go over here And it's like having one of these issues, one of these beliefs, one of these convictions, where it like seems so clear to you. Yeah, this is wrong, and we need help from over here. And you turn to God, and God's like, I'm going to allow a worse thing to happen in response to these bad things going on over here. You just be like, what, God, what? Like, that's not my plan, God. Like, weren't you listening? Did you not hear my ideas? Uh, This isn't how things are supposed to get better. And so, um, two really interesting things have happened so far in Habakkuk. First, in chapter 1, Habakkuk laments, which is this incredible, mysterious tradition in which the Bible invites us, when we sense that God seems unfair, to speak, to actually offer forth a contest, to say to God, God, you don't seem to be very fair (laughs) right now, right? It's a very bold thing to do, and Habakkuk does it. Uh, And as Habakkuk voices his lament, you see that some of what God is doing through lament is God is is drawing us out. He's inviting us to engage. He's he's asking us to, to share, you know, like our vision for why the world doesn't seem right. And normally at some point in that process, God has a gentle, like, are you sure? You know, like, do you see everything? Like, I, I, I understand why you care about this. But do you also see these other things going on? And and he's starting to create space in chapter 1 for Habakkuk to see maybe there is a bigger story here than Habakkuk is able to realize. This is why in chapter 2, Habakkuk is invited to the watchtower. If you were with us last week, I talked about that perspective shift when you go up to the top of the Willis Tower, the top of the Hancock. The city looks so different up there. God essentially says, Habakkuk, join me in the watchtower. Come up. Like, come meet with me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you something that will change how you see this. And the invitation of God in chapter 2 is this, is this bombshell of a verse in which God says to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. God essentially says to Habakkuk, you can't control this. You don't have the answers. Uh, you are not the one, Habakkuk, who can set the world right. But if you live by faith, if you can open up your heart, if you can trust me in the midst of something that doesn't currently make sense to you, then right there, Habakkuk, right there, you can find the very righteousness your heart is longing for. The only way for you to be righteous is for you to live by faith. Okay, this sets us up now. Uh, This has been all the hype we've been building. Here we are, the finale. This is now chapter three in Habakkuk. If you have a Bible, feel free to open up to chapter 3. We'll put some of the verses up on the screen. 
If Habakkuk has first lamented, then he has joined God in the watchtower. What's so beautiful about chapter 3 is that we're going to see Habakkuk's heart transformation through the wall take place real time. This is the real time movement of Habakkuk through the wall. It's an incredible piece of scripture. It's an incredible insight into spiritual formation. And there, there are gifts and treasures here. If you yourself are someone who either right now, like, is anticipating the wall is coming, like maybe you sense, oh, I haven't really hit that wall yet, but like, the wall will be coming. This is for you. Uh, this is for you if you're in the wall, if you're there, if you're stuck at the wall, if you have fallen on the treadmill, uh, this is for you. And also, if you've gotten through the wall, hopefully this will give you some clarity of like, oh yeah, no, I think that is part of how God helped me move through that very dark night of my soul. So here's where Habakkuk goes. First, this is now Habakkuk 3, verse 2. Habakkuk is going to start singing this song in response to God. And the, the first movement of this song is going to be a movement of remembrance. A movement of remembrance. So here's how Habakkuk starts. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Oh, man. It's a good verse. I'm already feeling it. I'm, re I'm ready to go. Come on, Habakkuk. Take us, take us where you want us to go. Um, here, Habakkuk begins by remembering who God is and what God has done. Remembering who God is and what God has done. Have you ever paused, especially if you're, if you're in the middle of just wrestling with doubt, if you're having a tough time, maybe you're struggling with depression, anything like that, I pause with a close friend, a spouse, a roommate, and just start to remember the times when God was good in your life. You ever done that? Like, um, we had one night, Jen and I were with another couple, and it just so happened my family had done uh, all of these missionary-type things where they had had to raise a lot of money at different points, and this guy had grown up sort of under a missionary family as well. And neither of us were doing missions currently, neither of us were living off of support, and yet somehow the conversation sort of turned to like, Oh, yeah, have you ever had a time where, like, your family had to raise money for, like, God and for the church? And he starts telling these stories of, like, oh, yeah, it's crazy. Like, this one time, this, you know, we had all this money we had to raise, and then it happened. Like, God showed up. Then there was this other time. And I was like, yeah, my family had that, too. Like, there was this one summer, and it was, like, $40,000, and nobody knew where it was going to come from. And then all of a sudden, like, how did my parents raise $40,000? In the summer, that's a lot of money, you know? And as we're having this conversation, all of a sudden, you just felt this swelling of faith. I mean, honestly, in that moment, he and I needed to go raise some money because I think we were ready to go. Like, the money will come. What do we need to trust God for? Um, but this is so much truer for your own personal life. I mean, just to sit, to sit with the details of God's goodness to you. The first time you ever experienced the presence of God. Have you ever told that story to somebody? Almost all of us have, and we never pause to ask, like, when did you first sense God in your life? Uh, it could also be the first time you ever, like, prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, or, or you had a moment of faith in a community, in a church. Like, what about that story? You know, I know for some of us, we were young, we were kids, yeah, think about what it means. I, I have a four-year-old right now that, like, at four years old, little John Perrine was sitting by his bedside. And with my four-year-old brain, I was so moved by this thought that Jesus died for me that I was like, let's pray this prayer. You know, like, let's go. I want 
what Jesus has for me. As a four-year-old, like, God was already calling, speaking, drawing me. This is what Habakkuk's doing. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds. Repeat them. Isn't that such a good claim in the midst of suffering when God seems unfair? Like, there is a sense, as we question God, that God says, my track record is quite good, <laughs> right? Like, just sit with my track record. Go back to the Red Sea. Like, sit with Israel on the waters and just ask, did I abandon them? Journey forward just a few books later into the wilderness as Israel's like waiting for this promised land. Was I there for them? Walk with me to the cross. There I am. Did I abandon you? Habakkuk says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I say in all of your deeds, repeat them. You, of course, are catching with me. In wrath, remember mercy. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Now, this even more fun thing appears for those who are Bible nerds with me and who want to hear these kinds of things. Um, if you are reading Habakkuk 3 on your own during the rest of this week, or maybe you were reading coming up to this, uh, it, it almost turns and it gets confusing. It kind of has some Hebrew poetry stuff going on. But let me, let me just explore with you what happens here. In Habakkuk 3a, uh, as Habakkuk, if you can stay with the story, Habakkuk is standing on the watchtower, so he hasn't left. Um, he prays, he starts this new prayer, like, I've heard of your fame, I'm remembering your deeds. And this is what Habakkuk says, it would be so easy to miss. God came from Timon, the holy one from Mount Paran. Now, I don't know if you know where Timon or Mount Paran are. So if you're reading your Bible on your own, you're like, I've got no idea what's going on. I didn't know either, so I had to do some digging. And as I did, what I discovered is that Timon is the region, and Mount Paran is the, another name in Hebrew for where Mount Sinai is. Now, this is why this is interesting. Habakkuk is standing on the watchtower, and he should be somewhere close to Jerusalem. And in Habakkuk's day, all the geopolitical power, all the religious presence of God, like if you were to look for where God was, you should look to Jerusalem. You should look to the temple. That's where God's presence was. And if you were looking for hope, you should look to the king of Jerusalem. Everybody knew, like if things are going to get better, we need a new king in Jerusalem that's going to follow in David's footsteps. But here's what Habakkuk does in his remembrance. He looks past Jerusalem and sees, he sort of glimpses, he looks out to where Mount Sinai was. Now, I've already set you up with some of the rumblings of this story, right? That um, the biblical scholars here ask this question, why is Habakkuk looking to Sinai? Like, why isn't he looking to Jerusalem? Why is he looking instead to Sinai? And their answer is, the kingship, that, that vehicle, that mechanism that Habakkuk had put a lot of his chips on, of like, this is going to make things better, has failed, the kingship has failed. And in fact, through the rest of the Old Testament, it's going to crumble and it's going to collapse. Like there's not going to be a king in Jerusalem until Jesus returns. But as that kingship has failed, Habakkuk glimpses beyond Jerusalem, this older source of where God had met his people. It's like an older story, if you will. And here's my thought for you. Um, if there's any practical application to this, if I'm, if I'm taking you anywhere interesting, um, the, the thought for you is, for some of us, in the middle of our suffering, there's something we were hoping for, there's something we were anticipating that has collapsed. And so sometimes, as I've pastored through many of these stories, it sometimes is like a person that you had really looked up to, maybe it was a mentor or somebody who you admired, 
and they, they're gone, they're, they're no longer following Jesus, I mean, something's collapsed. For some of us, it can be a small group, like a community of friends that fell apart. For some of us, it was a youth group, right? In the early days, the youth group was amazing. And by the end, as you look back now, you're like, oh, kind of confused. I don't feel great about it. For some of us, it's been a church that hurt us, where we got used, where we got burned out, where we just got tired, and now you're here. And as I'm asking this question, like, what is Habakkuk teaching us when God seems unfair? I love this moment. I just want to give you this moment that to get through the wall, you can't probably return to this old mechanism of faith that you had hoped for before. Whatever that means, you know, you're not going to be able to get back this thing where it felt great, where that small group was amazing, where you had this pastor that just inspired you every Sunday, you know, that that's not going to do it anymore. And Habakkuk says, look beyond to the older stories where God appeared. Like, remember that God is bigger than this thing that has let you down. Remember that God has moved beyond and above and behind and beneath in ways that are so much greater and so much grander than this limited thing which has let you down has been. As Habakkuk looks to Sinai, he's going to have this vision. Here's two verses from it. Habakkuk 3 to 4, then we'll look at one more. He has this vision where he says, His glory, the Lord's glory, covered the heavens. His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hands where his, how, where his power was hidden. Now Habakkuk is sort of describing something. I don't know about you. I'm like lost at this point. Okay, yay. <laughs> like his praise is filling the earth. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 11. Habakkuk keeps going. Here's what verse 11 says. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows at the lightning of your flashing spear. Okay, so again, here's just one more Bible trivia, Bible nerd insight. Um, as I was reading different commentators on this, I was so lost. And I was feeling like, man, where are we going to go on Sunday morning? When I get up in front of everybody, and they're like, what does the Bible have to say about this? Um, but then the insight came, and I loved it. Uh, the insight of the commentators that they think, quite literally, Habakkuk is standing on a watchtower, he starts with this prayer of faith. It's like, God, I remember your deeds. Remind me again, like who you are and what you can do. Then he looks not to Jerusalem, but he looks and maybe can even glimpse Mount Sinai from where he's standing. And Old Testament commentators suggest it's possible that as he's looking at Sinai, a storm sweeps in at this very moment. And Habakkuk is surrounded as the heavens fill with like the glorious clashing of like sunlight piercing through clouds, lightning flashing across the sky. Like whether this is happening in the moment or Habakkuk is just being this incredible poetic prophet that's bringing this together. The vision is that like Habakkuk's there in nature. And again, just thinking about sources deeper than the ones that have let you down. Habakkuk is reminded of the power and majesty of God. Like, Wow. This vision fills the sky. I don't know about you, but I, I am especially convinced for those who are struggling with faith, probably the first step, there's several steps you can take um, to, to start recovering faith, to start healing in your faith journey. But maybe the first step you should take is to get back out in nature consistently. And I think this is one of the reasons why the city can be an especially bruising, crushing place for people who are struggling with doubt, 
who are starting to fall away, who are sort of wondering what does their faith have to mean? It can be easy in the city to think that the world is made and maintained by human beings. But as soon as you get out of the city or even just travel a little bit out onto the waters of the lake, and you start to feel like little old Lake Michigan swelling, you know, shaking. Uh, you get out into the mountains. I'm from Arizona. We had a lot of mountains around us. Um, and the years 16 to 18 years old were the most encounters, the most frequent encounters I've ever had with God. And they all happened out in nature. Like it was just getting out and telling your senses, the world is so much bigger than you are. And who governs this world? Do you govern this world? Were you there when this world was made? I mean, nature just draws you into God. I love that Habakkuk is giving us this picture of remembrance, right? Remember God's deeds. Like, go back to the scriptures and read them again. Read the stories of how God saved. Remember through nature. Like, use your senses to open yourself up. See God as bigger and beyond that which hurt and harmed you. See this bigger story. Um, but here, here is where Habakkuk is nothing if not honest. And I'm so grateful for Habakkuk's honesty. We're going to jump to Habakkuk 3.17, oh, sorry, 3.16, where Habakkuk responds to this vision. And this just feels so real to me. Uh, if, you've, if you've been at the wall, if you've tried to make it through the wall, here's what Habakkuk says. 3.16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. What's Habakkuk saying? He's standing at the watchtower, and he has been in this contest with God, where he sees the sins of his people, sees the terror of how God is going to allow this foreign army to come in, and invade. And his heart has been churning around it. He's been wrestling. And God has been meeting him. God's been showing up. God's been listening to him. God's been speaking. God's been casting this vision of faith. God even shows him his glory, grandeur through nature. He's remembering. And yet Habakkuk is still, he's still contested. I think this sometimes is, is the sort of shallow lie that, that creeps into cultural Christianity. That somehow being a good Christian means that you never experience this, this contest in your soul. Listen to Habakkuk's words. I heard and my heart was pounding. Like Habakkuk feels the pressure. If this is real, this country is invading. You know, like the, the injustices he fears are, are about to take place. In fact, there will be suffering for people that he loves and is unavoidable. This is coming. Um, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. Oh, he just feels the weightedness of how life is moving forward. And of course, his legs trembled. Do your legs tremble before God? Have you had a trembling moment where God has spoken clearly and truthfully enough to you that you feel the cost of what this word will mean? Yet, yet here at the watchtower, here because of the remembrance, Habakkuk is able to open his hands and open his heart, and he is going to be able to accept the suffering that is before him, to accept the suffering that's coming. This incredible interview, I'm sure some of you have probably had a chance to see it, 
between Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert. I know we've talked about him a bit. He's a fast, both are really fascinating. Um, you, you maybe have never known, if you haven't seen this interview, that Stephen Colbert, the late night host, lost his father and two brothers on a plane crash when he was a child, right? So Colbert, like as a child, has his dad and two brothers die on a plane crash. Um, interestingly, Anderson Cooper also lost his father around the same time. So these are two men in their 50s, both lost their fathers as children, like just as unexpected tragedies. And as they're sitting and talking about it, tears are starting to fill both their eyes. It's this amazing interview. You should look it up after if you haven't seen it. Here's, here's what's the most moving part, though. At one point, Colbert says to Cooper, I'm learning to love the thing I most wish had not happened. Let me say that one more time because it's so profound. I'm learning to love the thing I most wish had not happened. Cooper asks, I think, the question any of us should ask in that scenario. He says, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? To which Colbert says, yes, it is a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. There is no escaping that. If you are grateful for your life, which I think is a positive thing to do, then you have to be grateful for all of it. You can't pick and choose how you will suffer. Let me read this one more time, because I think Colbert is drawing forth from his own Christian faith, is drawing forth from Christianity, this insight about suffering, that are the very words Habakkuk himself is wrestling to speak. He says, I'm learning to love the thing I most wish had not happened. I'm learning to love it. Here's how Habakkuk ends. It's quite a great epic finale. Um, this is Habakkuk 3, 17 to 18. Right after speaking that his legs are trembling, his heart is wrestling, and yet here at the wall, he begins to say, I will accept that which you have given me. I will accept this tragedy that's befalling me. Habakkuk then offers these words, 17 to 18. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine. Though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my salvation. Work with me through these those. Though the fig isn't budding. This is a terrible sign. I mean, we're not dependent on fig trees. Uh, but figs were all they had. Figs are going to produce olive oil. Figs are going to be nutritious. Though there's no grapes on the vines. So, so there's like nothing is there in the harvest. Everything has been barren. The olive crops have failed. Though the fields produce no food, now we're hungry. Every day we're hungry. Though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. I mean, there's no food. There's no comfort. There, there's no job. There's no vocation. Like you are, you are without work. You are without sustenance. This is as bad as it can get, right? And, and who's supposed to provide all these things? God. God is supposed to bring the rain that allows the crops to grow. God is supposed to bring the cattle to life so that you can flourish as a people. Though these things are happening, Habakkuk is holding this vision of a future in which suffering has grown as high as it possibly can. And he is saying the very same words that Colbert is saying. I will love the thing which I most wished had not happened. Here's my prayer for you. This is a, 
this is a radical kind of faith. Um, there, there's no easy way going about this. There's no quick fix to get you to these words of Habakkuk. But I wonder for you, I wonder if you were to think deeply or even just to have a moment here with the Lord um, to, to ponder what your those would need to be so that you can live your whole life as a follower of Jesus. What would your those need to be? I think for all of us, when we begin that journey of faith, we don't know that those are coming, right? There's a small sense in us at the beginning of this walk that we're like, I mean, sure, things will get hard, but like God's gonna, you know, mostly take care of us. Yeah, I'm sure like there might be a bad year or two, but like it's mostly gonna be up and to the right. And, and most of us live with these expectations and I've, I've sat and I've wept with you as you have told me these stories of like, God's gonna give me a spouse though, right? Like God is going to give me a child though, right? Like God is going to give me a happy retirement though, right? And as you sit with these expectations and these longings, they are good longings. I know they are good longings. I know, I know how, how precious they are to you and to God. The, the problem isn't that those longings are there. The problem is that you have not yet allowed them to become a though. And at some point, you're going to hit these moments and you're going to find the wall. And the wall is going to ask you, can you let this one go? Can you let this one go? Let me just speak really personally for me, and I want to wrap this up. Um, the hardest season of my faith. This was within a three-year window. Uh, for me, my life, I was growing up in a Christian family, grew up in the church, um, had a vision that God was calling me into ministry. So excited. I was going to serve God. And my, though, was that, you know, as long as I'm committed to serving God, then, like, the ministry itself will be rewarding and good, right? Like, I know I might not make as much money. I know I might not, like be as super successful or whatever, whatever these other things are. But like, as long as I'm in ministry, God is going to like take care of me, right? And within a three-year window, uh, Jen and I were part of Willow Creek Community Church. We were working at staff, on staff out there. Um, and we were there through the beginning of a transition, starting to leave. And then this, this bombshell goes off, I'm sure many of you were following with, of uh, the senior pastor, Bill Hybels, having these allegations of sexually inappropriate conduct. It ripped the community apart. I mean, like, people were divided. No one knew quite what to believe. It was incredibly tragic. Um, it still has fallouts, repercussions. I mean, Willow Creek is still hurting. And yet we were going through this and feeling the pressure on our own faith. Like, when a leader you looked up to, I listened to Bill Hybels' cassette tapes as a child, right? This was like a hero in my family, that this man... Was a, was a picture of why we should go into the ministry. And here I was in the flesh, like sitting with the devastation and disappointment that all of this had fallen apart. So my wife and I transition out of that church, sort of escaping the wreckage, and we head into what we think will be a better setup. In fact, we go, we go hard right uh, and join an Anglican community out in Wheaton. And there we really feel this like, oh, they're, they're going to be different. They're going to take care of us. Uh, they're going to like mentor us and, and house us and love us and empower us. And we're going to end up church planting with them. You know, things got hard. It was a little messy. Uh, but for me, this was my like, I know there's sins in the land, but here, here at least, God, things are going to flourish. And within uh, two years, my wife and I would find ourselves having left 
over disagreements around a lot of things. Uh, women in ministry was one of them. Some hiring decisions. There was a lot of over-spiritualizing and some weird relationships that just weren't feeling right. Um, and yet the moment we leave is it's February of 2020, right before COVID hits. Um, I was without work for six months, uh, nine months. Jenna was without work for six months. Um, and the worst part was that in the departure, you know, it wasn't just like a job. It was, it was our hope. Like this was the church we were looking for that was going to help bring everything together. And instead, like relationships had fallen apart. Um, the community was divided. Some people didn't really want to talk to us anymore. Um, our jobs were totally wrecked. And, and there, was, there was a season at the wall, and I just want to name this especially for you if you are near or going through the wall. There's a season I, I sat there in the dark of COVID, and I, I genuinely wrestled, like, am I going to make it? Um, am I still a Christian? You know, like, I, it feels like I have nothing to hold on to anymore. It feels like, like the bare bones basics of how God was supposed to meet my needs have collapsed. It was there. It was there in that dark night that God invited me to the watchtower. Through a series of events. These are, not sl- these are not fast movements. These were slow moments of remembrance where God invited me to see beyond. Was, was my faith about Willow Creek? Was my life about ministry? Was my status and my identity dependent on these external signs when in fact all God had been calling me to my whole life was to live dependently on him? Is there a God? I heard God ask me that. Look around. Come up with the best answer you have. You know, come out to nature. We walked the green fields of Ireland, God and I. That is nice if you can get out to Ireland in the midst of a... And there... There at the watchtower, God invited me to begin naming my those. Though ministry fail, though I am disappointed in church leaders I always wanted to look up to, though I experience hurt within a community, though I I felt betrayed, though I have no job, though I'm not sure where my life is going anymore, though I can no longer connect these pieces of faith that now feel sort of fragmented and broken, though I am not even sure where my faith is anymore or how to bring it back together there, in this moment, I will rejoice in the Lord because he is the God of my salvation. We have a song um, that our team at Community Music has put together on these words of Habakkuk. And for just a moment, I want to kind of bring this all together. I want to invite you to sit as this song plays over you as we're preparing our hearts for communion. Just sit and let, let these words wash over you. Um, invite, invite God to speak to your those right now, wherever they're at. They're probably there. I still have some probably that God will continue to work through with me. Let me close with, with a few of these incredible reminders for you that though you may not get cured, God still can bring healing. Though what has been broken may not be repaired, but God can still give peace. Though you won't emerge from the wall perfect, God can still make you whole. Let's go ahead and listen and reflect before we move to the table together.
How? 